Welcome to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Michelle Melton from the University Cooperative Extension Service. And Michelle's specialty is all things, let's see, they call it family and consumer sciences now, don't they, Michelle? That is correct. And what do you do besides, now, people have, I think, the wrong idea of what extension specialists are these days. We tend to kind of think of them as the nice ladies that would look up recipes for us, but you do very much more than that now. Yes, absolutely. The um, the old home economists of yesteryear, if you will, um, have been replaced by what we call ourselves now, which is Family and Consumer Sciences Extension Agents. We look at ourselves as your liaison between the university um, and the community, and we cover a wide variety of topics, most of which kind of have to do with things inside the home. So whether it is um, your health related to food, uh, preventing chronic illness, something to do with your family, finances, all sorts of different things, but yes, food preservation and um, nutrition, all sorts of things that used to be talked about with home economists are still what we do. We just try to make sure that we have brought it into the current year to make sure that it is all relevant and up-to-date information. Okay, and today we're going to talk specifically about food preservation because so many people now are growing their own food and they don't want it to go to waste. They want to put it by. And I know that a lot of people are going online and looking at things, and I've been reading some home canning horror stories (laughs) online. I mean, it's really scary. Somebody was recommending oven canning. Yes, it is. It is unfortunate. The, the internet is a wonderful thing. It does provide um, access to information that you might not otherwise be able to get. But with that comes information that we don't want you to necessarily get. Um, and with food preservation, specifically with the canning side of food preservation, uh, we we always say Google is not your friend in this instance. We want folks to know that um, that the recommendations out there, whether you can find them on YouTube or some random person's blog are not, in fact, research-based recommendations to keep you and your family or whoever you're serving your, you know, your home food preservation efforts to. Or it's just not a good resource, and that's where we really encourage folks to use reliable research-based information for their recipes. And how can people get into trouble if they don't? For example, well, the, you know, you, you, come, you have your old recipe that Grandma had that yes. she made when she was canning years ago. Yes, yes, yes. How well, the biggest, the biggest concern that we have in the, in the canning world is the risk of botulism. Um, we do know that over time science has evolved and we know more about food safety. Uh, bacteria, microorganisms have changed, and so there's some differences with that as well. And so what we're concerned about, the way that Grandma used to do things, we now know is um, is no longer sufficient, and that may be because our produce has changed, or it just may be because we now know better. Um, and and again, the biggest the biggest health risk, the biggest concern is again that risk of potential botulism. Now, back way back when, I remember my grandmother would put in canner loads of corn and mm-hmm. boil them forever and ever and ever. And now we know that something can happen if you do that, don't we? Yes, exactly. That's right. And, you know, you, you're talking about corn. I would say the, the product that I get the most um, concern about or the most frequent phone calls that scare me is, is more to do with the green beans. But the bottom line is when you are canning vegetables, vegetables are considered a low-acid food. And so, therefore, we now know that 
it's not a matter of you boiling it for 24 hours or however long. It's a matter of it needs to have an environment of pressure in order to reach an adequate temperature to, again, destroy any potential risk of botulism. Um, and, you know, we, I'm, I'll, I'll save you the, all the details of all the science with spores and toxins and all of that. But, again, we know that the process required to keep your family or whoever is eating it safe um, does require pressure canning, um, which grandma may not have done. She just used that, that boiling water bath canner at best case scenario. Sometimes they wouldn't even do that and instead just relied upon boiling, which is not the recommended process for food preservation. And in fact, if you are just boiling all the air out of the, out of the jar, that allows, since botulism is anaerobic, which means it grows in the presence, in the absence of air, um, it can actually make things worse. Exactly. I get these know. phone calls and, and the people will say, well, but, but Michelle, it's sealed. And I said, well, actually, you've, you've done yourself a disservice with that because that anaerobic environment is exactly one of the key factors that encourages the growth of the toxin um, that could potentially, of course, contaminate and lead to botulism. Um, and so that, that is exactly right. The, the misconception is that a sealed jar equals a safe jar when that is just not the reality of it. You have to follow the USDA recommended steps for food preservation uh, when it comes to canning in order to make sure that you have done everything safe and that the food inside that sealed jar is, in fact, safe. One of the things that's on America's Homegrown Veggie Show um, Facebook page is an, or a link to an article by a man who had canned some meat, and not only did he just shortcut the timing on it because he didn't have time to finish it, but after the jars would seal, he put them in the in the pantry, and then he, when he heard one unseal, he would take it out and eat it then. <laughs> and he ended up with botulism because, of course, the, it hadn't been properly done in the first place. And then when the seal broke, it broke because it, it didn't have anything to do with the condition of the food that had already been in there mm-hmm. because it had already had time to develop the botulism. And he was very lucky. He's alive. It, um, but he has neurological deficits. He's had some injury to his eyes. And that's a horrible death, too, isn't it? Well, it's it's no doubt something that you shouldn't mess with. And, you know, folks, they they look at grandma and they look at the history of their family and how, well, we've always done it this way and nobody's ever died, so I'm going to keep doing it that way. And, you know, for me and my family, that's, that's not the way I tend to want to live life. Uh, you know, we use the example of car seats a lot of times, you know, when grandma was driving around with the grandkids in the back. They were, they were just back there, probably didn't have any sort of seatbelt on or any sort of child restraint. And now, you know, we have these fancy-schmancy contraptions that our kids are strapped up into what seems like they're teenagers, um, which we just know for, for safety purposes it is a better process. Um, and so the same thing goes. We now know that um, you can't be in a hurry. You know, this, this gentleman who just didn't want to do it as long wanted to cut some corners. The process times are very important. That is part of the testing that is done on the heat penetration studies and to make sure that, again, every part of every piece of food in that jar has been tested to make sure that the heat was able to penetrate through it in order to kill excuse me, in order to be able to kill the potential organisms. And, yes, you are right. I mean, sometimes um, the the effects 
of botulism on folks range from whether it's vision or you can end up with some slurred speech type issues. But, yeah, worst case scenario is death, and we're not trying to be, you know, fear mongers, but it's a serious thing. And when we talk about recipes, too, Grandma has a lot of old recipes, and a lot of people would like to follow the recipes that their grandma had mm-hmm. or would like to have one that their friend gave them, say. And you can get into trouble there, too, particularly with some of the tomato-based products. That is right, and that's kind of another thing from Grandma as well. Grandma's tomatoes aren't the same as ours, we say, and a lot of that has to do with, over time, consumer preference for tomatoes have changed a bit. Um, Industry has responded to that by pretty well genetically modifying, um, or just really not so much genetic modification, but just the breeding of tomatoes um, to make them less acidic to meet that consumer demand. And in that process, as I mentioned before, the acid level of food is what determines whether or not it can be safely canned using a boiling water bath process or a pressure canning process. And Grandma used to always just do it in boiling water, no issues. Now you are able to safely can your tomatoes doing that boiling water bath process, but now because of the changed acidity levels across tomatoes, we now require the addition of acid. The reason, again, for that is to make sure that the risk of botulism is not a problem, and that's not going to be something you're going to find in grandma's recipes. There's never going to be any instructions to add lemon juice or add citric acid, which are the two recommended um, bottled lemon juice, I should say, are the two recommended additions of acid. So that, again, is why we always recommend folks are very careful where they get their recipes from, their friends and their neighbors and their grandma. Uh, they may have reliable ones, but it's always best to double-check that they, they coincide with ones that are from USDA research-based sources. A number of our listeners um, grow heirloom tomatoes. Are they safe, knowing that they're gr- growing heirlooms? We all, the, the recommendation does not change. There is, there is no tested recipe that will not recommend that addition of acid. No matter where you're getting your tomatoes from, the bottom line is we still want you to do the acidification processes, which for, um, for instance, two tablespoons of bottled lemon juice or half a teaspoon of citric acid is going to be added to each quart of your tomatoes that you're doing and half that much if you're doing pints. And you mentioned citric acid. Where do people get citric acid these days? You know, most folks are able to find it in their local stores, um, you know, where, wherever they're buying their canning jars. Generally speaking, there are some extra little goodies out there on the market um, to help you with your canning. Uh, and a lot of times they're able to find it that way. Every now and then, depending on your location, you may have to go online in order to purchase it. Some of your major brands, Mrs. Wages, that sort of stuff, have, have websites that carry products that you can also order it through there as well if you're not able to find it in your local stores. That's a good thing to know because I know a lot of people say, ooh, lemon juice, that's going to make it too sour. And the citric acid, I've, I've found that it doesn't change the taste at all. Mm-hmm. It, it does have a little bit of an acid kick to it, but it doesn't change the taste like lemon juice can sometimes. Well, and that's kind of the, the research that, that our, um, our folks have done actually did some testing with vinegar as well in order to be able to acidify the tomatoes. There is a recommendation amount for vinegar, but exactly like you're saying, we tend to stray from that recommendation because of the fact that it does impart 
so much flavor change that you start to you start to get away from being able to really enjoy that homegrown tomato flavor. So yeah, citric acid can generally be the best as far as not being able to tell it's in there. But bottled lemon juice, again, I guess it depends kind of on your your palate and how discriminating it is. Doesn't tend to be all that noticeable. And and what your what the end product is going to be too. If of you're course. using going to be mixing the tomatoes in a casserole with a lot of other things, it's really not going to make that much difference. Or in a tomato soup, um, we're going to have to take a little break right now. But when we come back, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about some of those old recipes and how do you tell? How can you tell if they might be safe or not? And you've got some really good resources that we're going to share, and we'll put up on the website. So we'll be right back after this break. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K steaks are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quicksteak.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick steaks. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick steaks, Q-U-I-K steaks, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. This is Michael Gano with Insight to Israel. Every day, the Israeli Defense Force finds itself on the front line of the war with the militant arm of Islam. Surrounded by enemies from within and without, they fight for the only Jewish state. Military service is mandatory. Ladies serving two years and men serving three right out of high school. While young people in other democracies are busy traveling or attending university, Israeli men and women gear up for basic training. In a world of heads of state, politicians, ambassadors, diplomats, and a leftist media, many times our voice at the grassroots level is drowned out. So we started an ongoing project called Hershey's for Heroes. Patriot conservatives from all over the U.S. are sending Hershey's chocolate bars with a note of thanks for defending Israel. Won't you join us by sending a sweet message to the IDF? For information, please see my Facebook page at Michael Gano. Thank you, God bless Patriot conservatives, and God bless Israel in her struggle for sovereignty and security. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and my guest today is Michelle Melton from the University Cooperative Extension Service. She's a family and consumer scientist, and we're talking food preservation and how we can do it safely so we don't, so we can enjoy the bounty that we've been harvesting all summer and not kill ourselves or, or poison our families. <laughs> Michelle, right before the break, we were talking about recipes, and one of the things that I know must drive you absolutely crazy is... If when people come in and say, hey, I found this recipe, can I use it? 
No doubt, no doubt. That is one of the more frustrating parts of the job is, you know, we want to help people and we want them to be able to use these recipes that they just think are just, you know, a godsend. But the bottom line is I don't have the money and we don't have the money. I, you know, I'm, I'm with the University of Georgia Extension to test every single recipe for its, its level of acidification and how, how long it needs to be processed. So we really do rely upon the recipes that we have that we know have been tested. So when folks bring in stuff just, you know, out of a newspaper clipping or out of, you know, great grandma's uh, cookbook, we generally try to find one that we know is safe and compare it. And um, that's when I sometimes have to have to defer to our experts, to our food safety specialists that are based out of Athens, Georgia, for me. And other extension agents then would be able to rely upon their university-based uh, food scientists to kind of help them out. But bottom line is we just really encourage people, instead of rummaging through old files, instead to try to find new recipes that have been t- tested for safety. One of the good resources that is available is the National Center for Home Food Preservation, which is based in Georgia, isn't it? It sure is, yeah. The University of Georgia is the, is the host of the National Center for Home Food Preservation, and we are very, very proud of that website. It is something that we kind of call the hub for all things food preservation. It's extremely user-friendly. Um, all of it, of course, is, is free and available for public consumption. On there, you're going to find information on uh, canning, freezing, and drying, including recipes. Recipes, pretty much any kind of recipe that you can think of is going to be on there for folks to know it is a safe and tested recipe. It'll include the process times, of course, as well as some information about altitude adjustment, which is something we haven't even touched on yet. Oh, yeah, we need to talk about that and about canners, too. One of the things that I have up on my computer screen right now I'm looking at is something that really I found that this morning from the links that you gave me, and it intrigues me. It's the Choice Salsa. And it said it was developed to allow you to be flexible when you're making your salsa as long as you use the proportions that they recommend. Yes. I think that's really cool. Yes, we are excited about that. This one has, this is probably one of the newest recipes that's been added to the National Center's uh, website. And it is exactly in response to consumer demand for flexibility. You know, we tell people, and, and when I teach my classes, I say at the beginning, if you learn nothing else by the end of this class, I want you to learn that when it comes to canning, you need to follow the instructions. Um, but, you know, we're, we're human, and we always kind of like to put our unique signature on stuff. Um, and so what this recipe does that, again, is available on the website, homefoodpreservation.com, is a, um overarching variation of baking salsa where it gives you the option to be able to uh, add the amount of spice, basically. If you want a really hot salsa, you can add more of your peppers. If you want a more mild salsa, you can leave a lot of that out. But they tested it in such a way that no matter which ratio the consumer chooses, we know that the final acid level and the process time recommended will result in a safe product. So it really is neat in the way that folks can customize a bit. I think I just when I saw that, I thought that was the best thing in the world because back when mm-hmm. I used to do a lot of food preservation, and my husband and I ate pretty much from the garden. We would buy salt and coffee, but I made most everything else um, except for the meat. I canned all the vegetables, and it would drive me nuts when I would come across a really great recipe and then not be able to use it except Mm -hmm. for fresh consumption. So I am so happy to see this. And one of the things, nice things about it is that it's simple. 
It says that you can use a variety of onions and peppers as long as you use a total of nine cups of onions and or peppers to six cups of chopped tomatoes and add, we talked about that, bottled lemon juice or lime mm-hmm. juice in this mm-hmm. case, and the canning or picking, pickling yeah, salt. Yeah. That's about that's, as easy as you can get. I know, right? Four steps. And, <laughs> and that's, that's where it's. It's important, and we talk to folks about, um, you know, when we say read the instructions and follow the instructions, we mean it. And in this recipe, it gives you the um, the option of having a combination of onions and peppers, any variety, nine cups diced. And so that's going to be an important thing because folks, you know, how, what do you mean? Okay, dice it up, then you measure your nine cups. It's not before you chop it up. It's not the whole. And so that's kind of another thing that we make sure to teach folks when it says, you know, do you do certain measurements, you kind of do it in the correct order. But, yes, it's still great for the flexibility that this recipe affords as well as the simplicity. And you use standard measuring cups. You don't use teacups like our grandmothers might have <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and liquid measure, dry measure and liquid measure, so you yes. need to have that handy. When, we, when you talk about the recipes, you mentioned this one here, and there are several books that people can get too, aren't there? There are. There's a lot of different resources out there. Um, we do encourage folks, again, to focus on those that are safe and tested. You generally know it's good if it's coming from a manufacturer of these products. So, again, Mrs. Wages, the Ball, uh, Jarden Home Foods, which is the maker of Ball brand stuff. Most folks are familiar with the Ball Blue Book. Those are all great recipes. The Ball Blue Book actually does a good job of doing some of the more creative, uh, kind of fancy, giftable recipes. But then, again, the National Center for Home Food Preservation, that website um, has, a, has a tremendous number of resources on it. And with it, there is a companion book. It's actually right now in print for the newest edition. The sixth edition is due out. It was originally going to be this month, uh, but it's looking like it's going to be September before it is available. That book, So Easy to Preserve, is an all-encompassing food preservation book, again, including information and recipes on canning, freezing, and drying. And it's a great resource source to keep in your kitchen because if you're anything like me in the midst of canning, you don't want to be running back and forth to your computer trying to look at recipes. Yeah, or or splashing tomato sauce all over your, your tablet right. because you put your <laughs> tablet into your kitchen to, to do that. Ask me how I know about that. It's oh, dear. Really hard to yeah. I've got the second edition of So Easy to Preserve. Do I need to go and buy the sixth edition? Yes, you do. There have been a tremendous number of changes since that. There are um, even, even pretty significant ones between the fifth and the sixth. So we always recommend that folks keep up to date with the changes um, when there's a new book to make sure that they're discarding the old one and purchasing the new one. Um, I, to my knowledge, the price is not 100% set on this new 6th edition due out very soon, but the previous one was $18. So it's not, you know, it's not crazy expensive, and it's just a good, safe investment for you and your family. It's certainly $18 or $20 or whatever it's going to turn out to be is a whole lot better than a trip to the doctor's office. No doubt. Your copay would inevitably be more. <laughs> yeah. So, and, and if people don't want to buy the book, of course, as we mentioned, it's available online. And I will be putting the links up on our Facebook page so people have that, too, so they can go and look at the recipe and see what's different. Now, we talk about old recipes, but what about... Um, those old canners that people oh, find my out there. Oh, goodness. You would not believe the stuff that walks into my office. The um, There is nothing inherently wrong with older canners. 
Um, a lot of them were built great and will still work. The thing that we always make sure to reiterate to folks is that if you are using a dial gauge pressure canner, it is imperative that every year, preferably before you start caning anything, that you get that dial gauge tested to make sure that it is accurate. Because, again, when a recipe tells you that you need to process it at let's just say 11 pounds of pressure, it's very important that you are, in fact, at 11 pounds of pressure when your gauge is telling you you are. Um, now, I know that I, I have it. I can see it right here in my office. I have a, a dial gauge pressure canner unit tester here in my office, and that's something I offer free of charge, and a lot of our extension agents here in Georgia are able to do that for you. And I know across the state folks have these testers in their offices um, in order to make sure that consumers have access to getting their dial gauge tester, or excuse me, getting their dial gauge tested. Um, so that's and really most, one of Sorry, go and ahead. And most, most states have testing equipment. A lot of them do. I, I don't. I don't know if I can say most because I'm just not that familiar with it. But the the caveat to that is dependent upon the brand. Some of them will and will not work. The uh, the gauge the brand that I have is a Presto brand tester, and they're the ones that support it. They are that's the company that every year I actually send my master tester off to to make sure that it's accurate, so that when I'm testing everybody else's, we know that it's good to go. Folks that are familiar with the All American brand canner, a really, really heavy-duty canner. They have a dial gauge on them, but they actually function as a weighted gauge canner, and those do not fit on our testing devices, not to mention the fact that they aren't recommended to be used as a dial gauge canner and instead should be a weighted gauge. So that would be one of the benefits if you are thinking about purchasing a canner for folks who are on the fence about dial gauge versus weighted gauge. The weighted gauge ones do not have to be tested. There's nothing that's going to become inaccurate about the weight. So that is one of the perks of the weighted gauge canner is that the accuracy is never in question. But you do have to kind of learn to tell with the weighted gauge, at least the old jiggle kind. Is there anything new in, in weighted gauges other than the kind that jiggles back and forth? <laughs> the, the I've always had trouble. I, I, it took me a while to figure out how exactly much it should be jiggling to get the no right doubt. Results. No doubt, and that would be that would be exactly the flip side. We say the advantage of that dial gauge is if you can pretty much look at the dial and read numbers, then you can use that that the operation of the dial gauge is fairly simple. Whereas some folks really have a hard time feeling confident with understanding. Well, when it says rock steady, what how, what is what is the definition of steady? I don't want it rocking too much, and that's again where you know I sound like a bre- broken record. Reading the instructions, making sure you have read that instruction manual that comes with your canner from start to finish will help you really do understand how that weighted gauge is supposed to function. As far as updates to the weighted gauge canner, a lot of times, you know, grandma's canner was a one-piece unit typically that rotated and dependent upon where you set it down in the circle um, would, would affect how much weight would be the pressure. Uh, now a lot of the weighted gauge canners come with three-part weights where you take off rings or you take off little pieces of it in order to achieve the 5, 10, or 15 pounds of pressure. But other than that, they, they've pretty much stayed relatively consistent and gotten better uh, as far as safety features go that maybe Grandma did not have. Yeah, safety features are, are really important. I had a, an experience when I was a teenager, and I wasn't, fortunately I wasn't canning at the moment, but my mom's old canner um, that we also used for cooking 
for pressure cooking, um, you could open it when it wasn't when the pressure wasn't completely down. <laughs> and I ended up with chicken all over the ceiling, all over the stove, all over me, all over the cocker spaniel. <laughs> not a pretty sight. It was, and it, that stuff was hot too, coming out of there, much hotter than than if it had just been boiling. So, and you can't do that with today's canners, can you? That is right. That is right. And that is definitely one of the benefits to forking over a little bit of money and purchasing yourself a newer canner as opposed to that bargain find uh, at the garage sale. The new canners have safety features, both in lid lock formats as well as kind of other plugs that blow out to prevent, again, food from being all over your house and ceiling and <laughs> pet in your case. Um, and it is and is it's a significant advantage because a lot of folks are actually really hesitant to get into canning because they hear about or they remember stories from their youth where food is exploding everywhere, so they consider it a dangerous thing. But with today's devices, there are enough safety features built into the canners that will kind of make up for any human error that we do uh, to help protect you know the safety of you and your family. We'll talk about some other stories and pressure canners, and I discovered a new device in pressure canning, but we have to take a little break right now. We'll be right back after this. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. Quick stakes. That's Q-U-I-K stakes are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of quick stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's quick stakes, Q-U-I-K stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings at 9 o'clock for Medicine on Call. On Medicine on Call, we talk about more than medicine. It's about how to take control of your mind, body, and spirit. Hi, I'm Paisley McDonald, and I'd like to invite you to listen to my show, At Home with Paisley, every week, Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern, for practical advice and stylish living for your home and office. Hi, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Join me and my co-host, Dr. Hal Schurz, as we talk about the topics that doctors talk about amongst themselves, such as Medicare, Obamacare, alternative forms of care, and health information technology. Join us every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. This is America's AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Polis, and I'm here with Michelle Melton, who is a family and consumer scientist from the University of Georgia Cooperative Extension Service, and we're talking food preservation, safe food preservation, because now that we've grown all this stuff, we want to keep it over winter. And that brings me to, we're going to talk about other canners, but I also want to talk about how long you can store this, because we were cleaning out my in-laws home and there were some canned goods that were 13 years old are they safe oh my word you know what the stories we get from that and the calls we get from that all the time it, it never ceases to amaze me again it's some you know somebody passes away and they're cleaning out their basements or wherever it may be and you know they're finding food older than i am 
in general, the rule of thumb, what we tell people is whatever you can, try to be able to consume that within a year. And the reason for that, there's a couple of different reasons, whether it's nutritional value or food quality, safety. Really and truly, there's not a hard and fast, you absolutely have to throw it away after a certain point of time has passed. But for best quality product, if you're canning more than you can consume within a year, we say try to start giving more of that away and sharing with others just for the general sake of food quality. Yes, I know a lot of us really, really love to grow food. And (laughs) for a long time, I would can everything that came out of the garden. But we weren't using it up. I mean, there was only the two of us, and even if I gave away things, it just wasn't enough. So in order to satisfy that urge to grow things and not to waste them, I started giving things to the food bank. Yeah. And it's a wonderful way to spread the wealth, and you don't end up, you know, and the food banks won't take your home canned food, but they will take your fresh produce. The fresh, that's absolutely right. Yeah, and, and it's, it's often really welcomed because they don't get that a lot of the time. Yeah, or they get the they get the tomatoes that come from the grocery store that bounce all the way, you know, <laughs> down the hallway afterwards into the real real stuff. Now, getting back to the canners, I uh-huh. just was looking today on the Ball website, uh-huh. the Ball Food, and they have a canner that really intrigues me. It you put the jars in and you tell it that you're doing pickles or whatever, and you walk away from it. Yes, they have um, a new device. This is relatively new on the market. The ball, I believe it's called the Fresh Tech Automatic Home Canning System. Um, This is something that has been met with sort of mixed reviews. It is a fairly... Limiting, I guess, is the word I a lot of times use to describe it, device, because of the fact that you are only able to can high-acid foods in it. In other words, it does not replace a pressure canner. Um, you can do your pickles. You can do jams and jellies. You can do tomatoes. You can do anything that you would normally do in a boiling water bath canning process in this appliance, but you don't have to have your own stovetop to do it. And that's actually where I think a lot of the benefit of this appliance comes in. So many of us have the flat top stoves at our homes and you really have to be careful because many of the manufacturers of those flat top uh, cooktops say specifically do not can on those and some of that has to do with the weight of canning, some of it has to do with the circumference of the bottom of the pot, but regardless, there's plenty of folks like you who have a tremendous amount of food from a garden and they want to be able to can it, but just because of their cooking surface, they're not able to, and that's where this device can come in handy. But again, it does have its limitations because it does not replace the need for a pressure canner for canning those vegetables and other low-acid foods. That's a good thing to know because it does look like a really handy device, but we've got, I, I don't know about you, but I have enough devices in my kitchen. I don't, <laughs> no I don't doubt. This will take one, a fair but, amount of space. <laughs> yeah, but if I could do a small batch of, of low-acid foods. Now, let's talk to people about water bath canning and high-acid foods and versus pressure canning and the low-acid food. We mentioned water bath is for only for the high acid foods. Mm-hmm. What does that include? Well, your high your high acid foods, generally speaking, are going to be your fruits, including things when you're doing your jams and your jellies, and foods that you are adding large amounts of acid to. So, you know, if you want to can your peaches, if you want to if you want to can your applesauce, that can be done in a boiling water bath process, or if you want to make pickles. 
though a cucumber by itself is a low-acid food, the fact that you're going to be adding a tremendous amount of vinegar makes it, be, makes it safe to be able to can in a boiling water bath process. And again, you know, we, we go back to that part we started talking about this morning with the, um, the acid level and the risk of botulism. When you're doing boiling water bath canning, you're only getting up to the temperature at whatever water boils based on your altitude. So sea level, 212 degrees. That is sufficient for those highly acidic foods. Um, tomatoes and figs are what we consider borderline on that acid chart, which, of course, we've talked about the need for adding a little bit of extra acid in the form of either citric acid or bottled lemon juice. And then, again, it makes it safe to be able to can at that max temperature of boiling water. Everything else, though, will have to be put into that pressure canner in order to achieve that magic 240-degree Fahrenheit temperature in order to ward off that risk of botulism. People, some people I know are afraid of pressure canners. Mm-hmm. But you said that the risk is out of these new pressure canners because of the little pop-out safety gauges and things like that. Well, that is what's interesting. People a lot of times are afraid of pressure canning because of their fear of the lid exploding off and food ending up everywhere. Whereas, you know, for folks that learn more about it, they tend to start to get a little bit more concerned about the fact that they realize if you do not do the pressure caning according to the instructions, and really I mean if you're not following the recipes according to the instructions, that's where you do have that potential risk for botulism with the foods that you create. There is no risk of that, and that's where we when you're when you're doing the high acid foods, the foods that can be safely canned in that boiling water bath process. And that's a lot of times where we recommend newbies to kind of get started with, to start with the highly acidic foods, the fruits, the jams, the jellies, the tomatoes, that sort of stuff. Um, just because again you're you're starting with a boiling water bath the process which can be a little less intimidating. The equipment, you may have a large enough pot at your house where, again, all you need is a large enough pot with a rack on the bottom of it and in order to be able to keep those jars off the bottom of the pot and uh, a lid. And there you go. You've got yourself a boiling water bath canner. Um, so, again, it's, it's kind of an easier way to um, introduce yourself to the canning process. Now, if I was going to be going online to eBay or out at some estate sale or yard sale, it would be safe to get a water bath canner not have to worry about it at all, right? No doubt. It's really just a big pot. I mean, there's there's different little features. Some of them have fancier racks that are able to be lifted up and lowered much more simply put. But yes, there's no there's no safety concerns that you're going to have to be worried about when you're talking about boiling water bath canners. There are ones that are specifically sold as that. But again, if you have a large enough stock pot where you can fit your jars in the bottom of it and have some sort of rack in the bottom of it, then yeah, you're you're good to go. And you have to have a couple inches of water over the top of the jars, too, right? That's exactly right. Depending on the size of the jars that you're going to be canning will will dictate how big of a pot you absolutely have to have. But no matter what, you have to have one to two inches of water boiling on top of the jars. And then, again, you want to have a little extra space like that just to prevent burns and boil over in danger. But, yep, that's, that's the rule of thumb. Now, what if I wanted to buy a pressure canner out there? Is there something that they should look for or not look for or run away from? <laughs> you know, there's there's uh, there's a couple of different things 
um, that you want to be looking for when you're purchasing a, a pressure canner. And really, it's it's a matter of, of consumer preference. When you're you're purchasing them new, you know these brands, whether it's Miro or Presto or All American, they're great products. They've been around for a long time, and you can't go wrong. But if you are purchasing them from someone else, or you're or you're looking, you know, secondhand stores, you just want to be considerate about the the age of the canner, whether or not you're going to be able to find replacement parts for it. Some brands are no longer being made. They have companies that have gone out of business, and so there's no more consumer or customer support for it, in which case it's really unfortunate, but if there's something that goes wrong, there's nothing you can do about it. You do have to replace some parts on pressure canners, um, well, specifically the ones that have the rubber gaskets. It's something that you're going to need to inspect regularly to make sure they're not starting to kind of dry rot out and become brittle and cracked, in which case you would need to be able to find replacement parts for that. The newer ones, you can order those parts online fairly simply. Sometimes your local stores carry that as well. But, again, you just got to buy or beware when you're, when you're shopping at the, uh, the old garage sales. And you certainly want to inspect very carefully for cracks and plugged up um, vent holes and stuff like that too, don't you? Yes, absolutely. You want you want the canner to be able to function appropriately, and in order to be able to do that, all of the parts need to be in uh, in good working order. Um, one of the things that I noticed on a lot of the old canners is that I don't see on the new ones so much. You mentioned the gaskets. Is it typical now that they're go- getting away from using gaskets and having metal-to-metal contact? You know, the metal-to-metal yeah, the metal to metal seal is generally just something that the All-American brand has. Um, they, instead of having the rubber gasket that goes inside the base of the lid to help it lock into place, they have kind of cranks that you have to do in a very specific order when you put your lid on, and therefore there is not that um, that rubber gasket, and we call that All-American brand a metal-to-metal seal. Um, otherwise, the Presto and the Miros, those, those still do mostly rely upon that rubber gasket uh, on the inside that, again, you want to inspect regularly. There's not a hard and fast, you need to replace it every so many years. It really comes down to how often you use it and how you store it and clean it and, and just, you know, basically how you maintain it. And, of course, the manufacturer's website will tell everybody exactly how to do that, right? Exactly. How, how often you need to, to do it to change them out. Because I know I had a canner that I, the gasket lasted probably seven years before I started noticing it was having problems. Mm-hmm. I would just yeah, take it out every time after I'd finish a batch and wash it and dry it and pop it back in. And that's 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 an example of good good care. And you know it's not going to last as long if you never if you don't treat it right, just like anything. Um, and if you if you're dusting something off from grandma's basement, then you, know, you just just like that pair of pants that's stuck in the back of our closet that we haven't been able to fit into, you know, since high school, the uh, the elastic's going to wear out, and just like that rubber's going to wear out and start to dry rot, and if that's the case, you absolutely want to replace it prior to using it to make sure that you've got um, a safe product. Fortunately, the canyon manufacturers that I've come across, well, of course, I have a Presto, and they've been around for, gee golly, probably 100 years now, I think. <laughs> and they've, I've never had any problem getting replacement parts for it, even when they- I've lost the weights and stuff like that. Yes. The, uh, I have had many different um, and levels of involvement with Presto from their customer service uh, department, and they've always uh, been really responsive. It's, it's, a nice, it's a nice company. Okay. When we come back, I would like to talk a little bit about freezing and drying and um, when it's safe 
is it safe to can blemished fruit? Our grandmothers used to, you know, pick up the apples off of the ground and, you know, just cut out the bad spots and throw them in the jar. Is that safe to do? And, and still can them, or do you have to freeze them, or what do you have to do with those? We always say with um, with canning specifically, you want to start with the best quality, highest quality foods because, again, as food starts to deteriorate, it begins to change the acid level of things. Um, now, there are going to be some, some examples where if it's just got a small bad spot, you can totally cut around that. And let's say if it's, a, if it's an apple and then you're turning it into applesauce, and then that would be okay. But it's very important that you are not canning foods that have had frost hit the vines because that is um, a, a very big way that you can change the acid level of the food, which can open the door for potential spoilage problems. Okay, but you can freeze those, and I will. We'll come back and talk a little bit more about freezing and what we need to look for, and also a little bit about drying right after All this right. break. This is Dr. Susan Blank, medical director for the Atlanta Healing Center. Our team is able to offer a multitude of treatment options, such as quantitative EEG, also known as brain mapping, hormonal and nutritional assessments, neuropsychological testing, and cognitive therapy, along with traditional twelve-step facilitation. And we can even offer you if a Appropriate, a gentle medically managed detox. Please contact us at 770-696-9862. Quick Stakes, that's Q-U-I-K Stakes, are not just for surveyors. They are great for family and community gardens. Go online to www.quickstake.com or contact your local land surveying supply dealer and get you a box of Quick Stakes. You'll love them every year when you plant your garden. Again, that's Quick Stakes, Q-U-I-K Stakes, the truly preferred way to stake and identify what's in your garden now. Don't be hoodwinked by the left who wants you to believe the fairy tale that we can power America on butterflies, rainbows, and pixie dust. I'm Marita Noon. Get the truth about energy on my show, America's Voice for Energy, only on America's Web Radio. This is America's Webradio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you. Welcome back to America's Homegrown Veggie Show. I'm Daryl Pullis, and I'm here with Michelle Melton, from, who's a family and consumer scientist from the University of Georgia Cooperative Extension Service. And we are talking canning, freezing, drying, getting our harvest in for the winter so that we can have it. And right before the break, we're talking about what to do with those fruits that may not be quite perfect. You mentioned we never want to can anything after the frost has hit the vines. And I know that if a lot of us have had a lot of disease in our tomatoes this year, just because the weather has been weird, I know folks up in the Midwest are just now getting tomatoes, but a lot of their tomatoes, because it was so cold and wet, um, they, they're just not doing very well. And the, a lot of the foliage has fallen off. And that can lead to not, the tomatoes not being as acid as they need to be and as safe as they need to be for canning. But we can freeze those things, right? We can, and I, I am. If I had to pick my uh, preferred method of food preservation, is indeed freezing. 
Um, it's just a great option, not not particularly time consuming. Of course, you do have to have the initial investment of a freezer, and then the uh, the energy cost of keeping it at the the safe and recommended temperature, which is zero degrees or colder. Um, but yeah, freezing is a great way to make use of some of the things that aren't quite right for canning. Now, you mentioned um, the cost of the freezer, and, of course, you have your container cost because you, I don't know, but a lot of people would freeze in, like, old margarine tubs. Is that recommended anymore? <laughs> that is not. And, uh, you know, when I do presentations, God love my mother, I use her examples all the time of um, these containers that she comes up with in order to put stuff up. I just, it, it never ceases to amaze me. And the general, the way that we tell people to think about it is, Consider where you purchased the food that was initially in that container. Was it from the freezer section of the store or was it not? And more often than not, it's the the sour cream and the margarine and those containers that people are wanting to reuse. But those were not designed to be used in a freezer, and therefore they typically do not provide sufficient moisture vapor resistance in order to protect the food and to give it the quality that you're going to want when it comes out of the freezer. So our recommendation like so many other things, is to read the uh, the manufacturer's recommendations, and if it does not say for use in the freezer, we don't recommend using it. Most of that has to do with quality, not safety, but at the end of the day, with the time and the effort that you put into growing the food and then doing the, the steps prior to freezing, you want the highest quality product at the end, which will result yes. if you use the right materials. Yeah, you don't want to have nasty freezer burn stuff. I can't tell you how much, again, you know, cleaning out from the folks, both my mother who saved, bless her heart, she saved every deli container in the world. (laughs) There was not a plastic container. She had a whole drawer full of them that that she would save, and that was after we purged them. And she, of course, had, you know, proper freezer containers too. But it was such a disappointment to see, the fruits that had gotten put up that were freezer burned and just kind of dry and nasty and mm-hmm. inedible. Um, fortunately, I have chickens, so I could toss a lot of that stuff to the chickens, but that was kind of a waste. The other thing that I found, found that happened was if you take out one of these deli containers and um, accidentally drop it, very often they would crack. Yeah, the freezer my- containers wouldn't. That's right. They, the other, the containers not designed for freezer use aren't designed to withstand that. They become more brittle um, and are at risk for cracking or, or just again having some sort of element of um, exposure risk for the food inside. So that's why we say those those deli containers or the the margarine containers. If you want to reuse them, that's fine. They are great for sending leftovers home uh, with your kids in, but only to be you know then put on a plate and warmed up and then tossed the next time around um, as opposed to being used as a freezer container for food preservation. Now, what does freezing do to the taste of food? Well, freezing, you have to consider, it is, you know, there there is a fair amount of uh, damage, for the lack of a better word, to the, the molecular structure of food when it gets put into the freezer because of the cell walls are breaking down, all these ice crystals are forming. So that's where, in order to get the highest quality product at the end of the day when you're freezing foods, it is best to follow the, the, the recommendations for potentially having to blanch first or do some of the pretreatment steps in order to help limit the amount of damage done to the foods in order to, again, get the highest quality product at the end. And tell people what blanching means. 
Well, you're, it's, a, it's a heat treatment process. There's steam blanching where uh, the, the food is above the water, and then there's boiling blanching uh, where you're submerging the food in the water for a very specific amount of time. What blanching does is it inactivates the enzymes that are naturally present in food. Those enzymes are a good thing up to a certain point because they help food ripen, but then if they're allowed to just continue to act upon the food, they, of course, make it overripe and start to rot or deteriorate. So when you're freezing foods, there are blanching instructions, mostly for vegetables, um, that will help stop that enzymatic action in order to uh, allow for the, the least amount of breakdown while it's in the freezer. I think the worst thing that I've ever eaten in my entire life was some corn that a friend had frozen without blanching first. <laughs> it was just all so nasty. It tasted like the cob. I don't yeah. know. I, I wouldn't ever, ever want to do that. And people think that blanching is, you know, maybe a little bit more difficult, but I never found that it was particularly hard to take a basket of, say, green beans, plop them in the boiling water, count to, I guess it was three minutes, take them out, throw them into ice water, and then when they were cool, I'd just drain them and spread them out on a cookie sheet till they'd fr- freeze, and then I'd just pour them into a container. Ah, yes, you do. You did the blanching and the tray pack options, and that, those are great, great things. Um, yeah, the blanching, the blanching step. Um, again, it's a, the um, Home Food Preservation. Uh, dot com website has got specific instructions on there for how many minutes you you blanch each of the different types of produce and it is important that water bath that ice water bath step stops that cooking process because as we all know you take something out of pot of boiling water it doesn't instantly cool off so by submerging it into an ice water bath you stop that cooking process so you're not you don't end up with a, a mushier than desired product. And then you do have the option of either, either just throwing it all into a freezer-appropriate container or doing, like you said, which we call a tray pack. And that's a great option. You know, when we go to the store and we purchase, whether it's frozen peas or blueberries, we're able to pour out a cup or a half a cup or however much of that food we want at a time because the food is frozen individually. It's spread out in the outermost layer of that food is frozen prior to being placed into a container so that way it doesn't all stick together in one big blob. And that's a really great option for folks to do in order to make best use of those frozen foods. It's especially nice for things, like you mentioned, that you're going to pour out, like maybe blueberries for your cereal or for blueberry muffins. Exactly, yeah. Now, can people blanch in the microwave? Um, there are some recommendations. There are some different steps for that. A lot of times, though, the, the the number of batches you have to end up doing, and it's a little bit more difficult to get the timing just right, really affects the the overall quality for that. So it's again one of those things where we just remind you know encourage you to follow the basic uh, steps listed with each type of food. Okay, and freezing. You said you got to keep it below zero. I know a lot of people worry about storms. Yeah. What do you do when a storm comes? Well, this is where we really encourage folks to have a separate freezer and refrigerator thermometer. Everybody wants to rely in this digital age on that digital temperature set um, in their in their appliances. But when the power goes out and you call me and say, I don't know what to do. Is my food still safe? I just realized my, uh, my freezer stopped working. If you can't tell me what the temperature is, then it's really hard for me to give you information about what is and isn't safe. So for starters, making sure you invest, and in, they're very inexpensive, a, uh, a, a portable, a separate 
freezer and refrigerator thermometer is a good thing. Um, generally speaking, a, a full freezer is a as a happy freezer. It's it's more energy efficient and it will stay frozen longer. There are some recommendations for dry ice usage if that power outage is expected to be, um, you know, potentially longer. But really, if you just don't open and shut and open and shut the door, a full freezer will stay frozen for um, it, it ranges in the amount of time for one to two days um, and still keeping that food at at least refrigerator temperature. But again, you don't know for sure unless you have that separate thermometer to double check. That's a good thing to know. Um, we were also told to throw a blanket over the freezer if we had an extended power outage, and that would, that would give us quite an extra bit of time. That can, yeah, that can help buy you a little bit of time as well. The biggest mistake people make, though, is opening the door and checking and checking and checking. Um, that just, you know, that just allows so much of that cold air to come out of there, um, which, which of course increases the temperature inside. You got to think about it. All of those, those chunks of meat and everything in there is they're serving as ice packs because they are indeed hopefully thoroughly frozen through so they can they can withstand uh, a, a little bit of time um, without without worry the your fruits some of your vegetables those are going to be the faster things to thaw and what we tell folks to look for is the presence of ice crystals if you still have ice crystals present uh, then you know your food has remained at at least refrigerator temperature and is safe to consume one of the tricks that I was taught um, in anticipation of, a, you know, a big storm was if you have space in your freezer, freeze ice, you know, make, uh, use freezer bags full of ice or milk jugs and put them in there a couple of days ahead so they're good and cold. Right. Do you find and that that's helpful too? Well, really what that's doing is just you're, you're wanting to fill up empty space. So if your freezer is already chock full of stuff, um, then that's not going to be as big of a concern. But yes, if you, if you, or if your freezer is only full of things like frozen blueberries and frozen corn, you know, very small pieces that aren't going to stay frozen for a long time, then yes, adding larger chunks of frozen things, milk jugs, whatever it may be, um, that will help buy you some time as well. Um, how do you know, um, you know, under normal usage, how long can you store things in the freezer? The, the storage times of freezers, there is a, there's a whole chart. Again, you can find it on the National Center for Home Food Preservation website for when it's recommended to, uh, you know, consume certain foods that have been in the freezer. But all recommendations for that is 100% based on quality of the food. If you properly handle a food, and I mean from the time you get it out of your garden or the time you get it from the grocery store, um, and handle it safely before you get it into that freezer, it stays safe indefinitely. In fact, this is something a lot of people do not know. Freezer burn is not a safety problem. It is a quality problem. It is a moisture loss problem that, you know, results in your food tasting much like a, a shoe or a tire. Um, but it's not a safety problem. It would not make you sick, in fact, to eat it from a, from a biological standpoint. Um, but really and truly, there are various uh, recommendations. It can be as short as a month for certain things and as long as one to two years for other things for the amount of quality that is retained in foods. So, again, we just encourage folks to look at some of the recommendations and use a first-in, first-out system. If you're the type of person who every time chicken goes on sale, you're buying some and putting it in your freezer, make sure that you're using what you put in there first, first, so that the, the overall quality remains the highest. 
Yeah, don't leave it sitting in the very back of the refrigerator, of the freezer like I do. That, that doesn't <laughs> well, and that's, that is a good. That is a mistake so many people make is just poor freezer management. Um, you know, there's it's it takes some effort, but to keep an inventory list of what's in your freezer actually posted on the outside of your freezer is a great way to help keep yourself organized so that way you know what's in there. And so you also don't have to rummage through that freezer with the door wide open. You know, you're able to see your list that is on the outside and see, oh, yep, I have this many of this. And uh, I don't have to buy more of that at the store. I don't have to look for that. And, you know, you just cross it off as you use it. And that's uh, that's really an ideal way to make sure that you're getting the best quality out of stuff by making sure you're only stocking up on how much you really need. Those are great tips, Michelle. I really appreciate it. I appreciate you being with us this week to talk about food preservation. And we'll be putting the websites that you mentioned and a couple of more up on America's Homegrown Veggie Show uh, Facebook page for everybody to see later on. Thank you so much for being with us, Michelle. And for the rest of you out there, uh, I hope you'll join us next week. This is AmericasWebRadio.com, the best in chat radio designed just for you.